0: I was listening to a podcast earlier this week and one of the gentlemen was sharing that his, his father has aged to the point where in, in his real estate transactions, uh, he goes to be a part of those transactions. Uh, he's one that's kind of an executor of his estate and so he'll go. And his dad is like an old school attorney. And when he sits down at closing, he says, well, I should read all of these. And he reads every document in front of the closing team. It's kind of rude, right? Feels it. Feels a little rude. But he does it. He reads every word. It's a major transaction. You're entering into things that have to do with property and ownership. You're entering into a transaction that has to do with responsibilities. But he reads every word that goes into that closing document. And it is vast. The average closing in America today, even with digital forms still has something like 100 pages that are a part of it. That's a lot. I read a lot. I wouldn't want to sit there and do that to somebody. But he sits there and he reads every word. And I wonder at times if we don't approach some of the things that we're entering into lightly, where, you know, what's the greatest lie that's told in America today? I have read and agree with all the terms and conditions, right? I mean, that's we all know that feeling where it's just like, Sure yeah, sure, I just need to get this thing done, right? Or like, why did this update now? I have a paper due. I'm meeting with a couple after the service today for a premarital, and they're gonna enter into something called the marriage covenant. And I'm gonna sign a document as, as a part of a representative of the state of Florida, but more importantly, as a, as a minister of the gospel. I'm gonna sign a covenant of marriage A marriage certificate. It's something that has legal binding to it. And there's just one document involved in that. One document for the covenant. Hundreds of pages for this fiduciary responsibility of homeownership. You know, that that, that may actually speak to us something about our misunderstanding of covenant at times. See, Hosea... Uses covenantal language. There are terms and conditions. And rather than just clicking the button, rather than just saying, I've read and and I agree with all of this, God spells out the terms and conditions for us in a way to help draw us to Him even more. In other words, once loved, He doesn't presume on always loved. We acknowledged this last week, the the time frame between uh, when the children of Israel were released from Exodus, or excuse me, from Egypt in the book of Exodus till this time of Hosea is right around 500 years. Jesus, or excuse me, God himself is saying, I have released you from Egypt, and yet there are ways in your heart you are returning to bondage. And he's spelling out the terms and conditions for us. And so we're going to actually read three chapters of God's word together today. We're going to go through the terms and conditions. Now, this is not a dry exercise at all. There's covenantal language here. There's something about relationship and responsibilities. There are aspects of our hearts that there are blessings for us if we... If we keep to that covenant and then there are conditions for us and penalties were we to break that covenant. But you see, as we read this today, we recognize there's all kinds of things. There's, there's an old covenant that we're reading and so it can be easy to just say, what does this have to do with anything now? Jesus has come. Well, we should certainly read it with that in mind and we'll return to that. But Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So we should still seek to understand it. We want to see some of the beauty in here of God's divine love. We want to see and understand his law. We want to understand how the depravity of our own hearts, that's not a word that we use a lot today, the depravity of our own hearts, how eminent that God is, both in how vast he is and how near he is to us, how corrupt we can be in the sovereignty of God. So with that in mind, let's begin reading Hosea chapter 8. Verse 1, set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, we know you. Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. Now, if you've been kind of keeping track in our series, this sounding of the trumpet may echo what we read in Hosea chapter 5. It's a call to prepare for battle. When God sounds the trumpet, he is calling his people to wake up and to listen. Wake up and listen to him. He's speaking to us. Now, I don't know what version of the Bible, what translation of the Bible that you're reading from today, you may see the word eagle there. Uh, The ESV, which I read from, which we preach from here at Metro Life Church, uh, we use the word vulture. And you may think, well, which one of them is right? Well, what the the author is trying to convey is that there is this predatory scavenger on the hunt. We often think of eagles being these predators. They're kind of like these alpha birds. I mean, it's our national bird. Except it's actually a scavenger. USA. Okay, nobody's doing that now? All right, I see. Scavengers. It's what we celebrate in our national bird. I'm not at all trying to knock our nation. But I am trying to remind us, Scripture uses these words in a way to help us understand something. He is saying, That there is a predator who is a scavenger seeking out the weak of God's people. Seeking out the weak of God's people. So instead of God bearing them on eagles' wings and bringing them to himself, as it says in Exodus chapter 19 verse 4, the Assyrian eagle is about to swoop down on them as, as its prey. And, and they know not God. We'll see in a moment that they don't rule under his authority, that they don't worship him rightly anymore. But what do they cry out at first? They say, God, uh, it's Israel. You know us, we know you. And they are in this place where they have misplaced authority. Authority no longer resides with God As they're calling upon his name because they've been looking to other authority to rule over them. It reminded me this week in study of Psalm chapter 20 verses 7 and 8 that says this. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They, that is chariots and horses, they collapse and fall. But we will rise and stand upright. Now, you may note here in these opening verses... Two things. One, if you keep going this slow, we're not going to get out here till dinner time. Don't worry. We're introducing the subject here. We're going to get through this passage together. Two, he's talking about transgression. Now, what is transgression? Last week, as we were looking at the pride of man and how men fall short when we aim for the things of God, and yet we don't hit the mark Sin is, is missing the mark. But this passage uses the word transgression. What, what, that, what does that mean? It means that you know what is right to do, and you do the opposite anyway. Now, it would be easy here to start talking about maybe like a two-year-old or a three-year-old, kind of using that cute illustration of them kind of staring at you after you've said no and doing something anyway. How about a 45-year-old? Near our house, there's Eastmont Park. Dogs are not allowed in the park, which I found out as I was walking my dog, Duncan the Wonder Dog, through the park. That was embarrassing. I didn't read any of the signs. I'm following our founding pastor's lead. He never read signs. Why should I? Look how the Lord's used him. They let me know in no uncertain terms that was not okay. Well, that was a couple of years ago when we got him, and so I've sought to find other routes around it. After the last couple of hurricanes that we had in the fall, one of the paths that I use is blocked. That path is blocked, and, and I can't kind of cut through for a, a one-mile walk instead of a two-mile walk. And, and there's really no, no other way around it. I've, I've explored and tried to find. So there's this, this couple gates, though. Right there at the park. That if I just, if I sneak in this one, I can sneak out that one real quick. You know what that is? That's transgression. I know that because I do it a lot. Now I've called. I've made all the excuses in my head for why it's okay. I've called. I've let them know that the path is blocked and I would love not to break their little rule. And they thanked me for my call. And they've done nothing. So I'm completely justified this in my own head to continue to transgress that rule. You know, it's funny when we're talking about Duncan the Wonder Dog, but how often do we have that mentality toward God? There's this thing I want God, and you're blocking the path. So I'm gonna go around your way, I'm gonna make a way for myself. You know what's sad about my own illustration? Is how much I kind of delight in transgression. We're all laughing at it together. And yet, before a holy God, transgression is something that says, You know how it is that you're called to live. And yet, you do the opposite of it anyway. Transgression before the Lord is a serious thing. I'll write a letter of apology to the city of Altamont once they clear my way. See, the people of God had misplaced the authority that God was to be in their lives. Let's continue to read together. Hosea chapter 8, verse 4. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I, I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols. For their own destruction, God is saying, there are kings, but they're not my kings. If you read in the book of Kings, you actually see this intimate way that God is a part of the process of, of identifying, of setting apart, of even preparing many of the kings that would be a part of the nation of Israel. But if we go back a little bit before that, we see that the nation of Israel is kind of looking around to all of the nations around them and say, well, These nations, they prosper because they have kind of a figurehead. They have a king that you can look to and in his strength and his might. And you know what? All we have is God. So we need a king. God says, I don't think that's what you're looking for. We need a king. Okay. And he's intimately involved in the process. But what begins to happen is that they slowly drift away from even having God being a part of the process of those who are going to rule over them, even in their nation. And God says, not my king's. Remember, you you asked for this and I warned you. And then you began to even stray from asking me those who were to be over you. They were imperfect individuals, to be sure. When the people cried out for a king, God provided. But then they kept the kings without acknowledging the king of kings. Continue to read. For I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. So God says, Not my king and not my calf. And we're not talking about a fluffy cow or a cow to provide milk or sustenance. We're talking about an idol, an image carved by craftsmen. An image that's been spurned by God. Now what we're not talking about is going back to the Exodus account of the people of God coming out of Israel, or excuse me, coming out of Egypt. What we're not talking about is the one that was made by the brother of Moses named Aaron. Actually the calf that God is calling out the nation for creating in the midst of this distress was one that was made at the time of Jeroboam the And you may think, well, why do we call him Jeroboam the first? Well, because there's going to be a second one. And we're not talking about him either. We're talking about Jeroboam the first. And we realize that what is happening here is the God of the universe is speaking to real people at a real place in a real time, and they are really walking away from him. He is speaking into the history that he is sovereign over. Jeroboam the first, he was a king of the divided nation of Israel. He had an interesting sort of situation. God made him king because Solomon's son, Reba was an idiot. He had done foolish things. He had been the one who divided the kingdom because he had this pride in his own ideas. He said, watch this. I'm going to split the nation, and that's going to be better for all of us. But God is the one who oversaw tearing the kingdom in half, but out of, seemingly out of the hands of the descendants of David. And God gave the northern kingdom to a man named Jeroboam. Now, here's where I want to pause. Today, I don't want this to be a teaching. Today, I don't want this to be a history lesson. Those are very good things. I want us to hear the heart of God for us today as his people gathered here. I would commend books to you like Hosea, The Passion of God by Tim Chester. I think that the, the every word kind of teaching that commentaries can do are very helpful in cases like this. I would, I would highly commend that book to you. It's one that we've used even in study uh, preparing this series. But what I, what I want us to do today is to see this Old Testament prophecy under an old covenant And see how it still speaks to things that reside in our hearts today. Those old things that still remain. So Jeroboam is set up as the king and God tells Jeroboam, if you follow me, I'll establish your kingdom like I established the house of David. I'll I'll bless you. But you see, the problem was that Jeroboam, now the king of this northern kingdom of Israel, also had the southern kingdom of Judah whose capital is Jerusalem. And some things haven't changed. So what is Jerusalem? Why is that significant? Well, the temple's there. The temple where the people of God were told to go and to worship him. So Jeroboam started thinking, like, okay, so when the people go from my kingdom into this other kingdom and they worship there, because that's where the temple is, that's where God has commanded them to go to worship, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to lose these people. Now, you may think that that seems like a stretch. Well, why don't we look at 1 Kings 12, 26 through 28? You don't need to turn there. I've got it for the screens. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Dangerous. What was the reason he did it? Fear. He did it out of fear. He thought about it, he contemplated the idea. He brought in other counselors. What do he say? What do he think? In his heart, he says, they're going to kill me. Fear. Now, fear is a subject for a series all its own. Fear can be that fight or flight response. We're, we're called as believers to fear the Lord. Well, is that the same kind of fear? I don't think so. I've been talking with Shane. I said, I'm tired of using the word spectrum because there are times that it's appropriate to use and there are times where it just doesn't seem to capture and bandwidth doesn't do it either. So it's like in the galaxy of this idea, in the universe of all the possibilities of how fear could be used. Fear is what the prophet is bringing up to the people. And it it got me thinking. As we're looking at this passage, last week, God is calling out the pride of Israel there is a swagger that they're walking about with in the decisions that they are making that go directly against the things of God. But you know what the opposite response to that is? It's not fear. It's not being afraid of everything. It's not being at a place where it's like, we can't do anything then. So it's this paralyzing aspect of our lives. I think that there are fears that we face like those who don't like to be home alone. I don't think that's the kind of fear that they're talking about here. Those who get startled easily, I don't think that's the kind of fear that they're talking about here. So, what kind of fear is the prophet trying to identify by using this illustration? How about this? The fear that God is not enough. Now, I'm assuming it got real quiet because we all know that fear too. It is startling. But not in that heart skips a beat, take your breath away kind of a way. It's startling in that way because we begin to think, I need to find something strong enough for this. What if God's not enough? Maybe two gods will do. It's what Jeroboam did. Calves made of gold out of fear that the people would kill him. What is it that you're facing in your life today that causes that kind of fear? causes an unholy fear. I mean, when we talk about the subject of fear, we, we are called to fear the Lord. Actually, Isaiah speaks about this when he speaks about Jesus. Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through three say this, there shall come from the, uh, forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, many of us who've grown up in the church, this is probably familiar territory. Oh, he's talking about Jesus. Well, let's look at the rest of the verse. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You know, those those last two statements should make us wonder what the fear of the Lord is. Here we see that the fear of the Lord is not something that Messiah wishes to be without. And he's not reluctant about the fear of the Lord. No, it's actually the opposite. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. So it kind of forces us to ask the question, are there things in our heart that we fear that God is not enough, but because we are not filled enough with a holy fear that is the same as Christ's very delight? It's not just this negative gloomy duty for us. The fear of the Lord is is expressed in Scripture as the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. I think that we've seen this on display in a couple of ways this week. Coach Tony Dungy fears the Lord more than fears man. Benjamin Watson, standing with him, fears the Lord more than he fears man. A hockey player fears the Lord more than he fears man. I watch sports a lot. Pray for me. See, there are ways in our culture that the fear of the Lord will have to overtake our fear of what the culture can do to us. You know, there, there's a phrase that, that I've heard. They hate us because they ain't us. They hate us because they ain't us. Let me make sure I articulate that poor grammar well. In, in many circles... You'll hear in kind of corporate world or in media or in influencer language, yeah, you hear a lot about cancel culture and that's not what this is about. But you realize that there are industries that are built on, we made you so we can take you down. I think we all have a bit of that fear that resides in our heart. This thought of, I have built my life on this and then you have this moment of, My convictions as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ, facing a... Don't let the world make your identity because they can break that identity. But you know what is so good for us to understand as we look at this concept of the fear of the Lord, as we begin to wrap our mind around what does it look like to delight in the fear of the Lord and to not be concerned with the fear of man and what they can do to us. Here's what's beautiful about it. If Christ makes you a child of God, they can't do anything to that. He made you, they can't break you. That's good news for us, church. But this is the tension that the prophet Hosea is speaking over a nation. And it's one that we should continue to wrestle with today, even as we are reading through the terms and condition of this covenant, because we do have a great high priest. We do have one who has secured our salvation that no man can take away. We do have one who has understood every weakness that we face, understands those moments of trials where it does take our breath away, it does cause us to pause. And he still calls us to stand. And not only that, he provides that we might do so. Hosea chapter eight, beginning in verse seven. For they sow the wind... And they shall reap the whirlwind. Ooh, we gotta get going. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey, wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. There they hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning. They have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept it. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Can you think of a time where you sowed your wild oats, so to speak? My 18th summer. Stephanie reminds me of it to this day. Sowed the wind, reaped the whirlwind. I think we all have those kinds of moments. I don't think that's going to be a task that takes too long. We're not going to have a pause for you to reflect on those things. And Here's, here's why. There are real consequences that we face from our actions in this life. There are things that we sow into that we will reap a hearty bounty, good or bad. But you know the leaders of the land, spiritual leaders, what are they doing here? They are scrambling because of their own lack of conviction. They are scrambling to try to come up with ways to provide and to keep in good relationship with God, and they're scrambling to all of the wrong things. They're scrambling to all of the wrong things. So even in the ways that we might be able to think back to a time where we sowed to the wind and we reaped the whirlwind, you know what I, I shouldn't do with that? Scramble to all the wrong ways to try to make up for that. No, that, it calls me to look to Christ alone. It's not, it's not something where we just ignore our past and act as if we never had a past. And so families, we can see this kind of happen where it's just like, I never knew that that happened with grandpa. This is why you'll hear me at different times when I'm addressing parents say, uh, parents, please, parent out of your imperfections more than your perfection. Your kids see the imperfections. So the wind, reap the whirlwind. Verse 11 tells us that altars are multiplied, and so are fortifications. These are altars of sinning. What if God said, as Paul did in Aragapus, I was passing through considering the objects of your worship? What objects would he find erected there for you to worship? What if he walked through your life and saw those things? Are there altars that we've set up that we worship that are not of God? We will never find the help. That God intends to only come from him in ourselves or in one another. Now here's where we get to the passages we're just going to read through. Hosea chapter 9. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the hand of the Lord. But Ephraim shall return to Egypt. They shall eat unclean, unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour out drink offerings of the wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourners bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled." For their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival? And on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways. And hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish Their sins. May God bless you as you go. No. Do you see the reverse Exodus happening? The trap of looking to the ways of the world. Let's just boil it down to that. Looking to the world to satisfy what only God can do is a trap. No, I will not do Admiral Akbar here. It's a Star Wars reference. Looking to the ways of the world for what God can provide is a trap. Church, don't fall for it. Scripture tells us that we know that we have an enemy who is scheming. He seeks to kill to steal and to devour but here's what scripture also says and we know his schemes you see we know his playbook look to this thing it'll be enough look to this thing it'll be enough combine them they will be enough they will never be enough i love the song that we sang in worship today We're fighting a battle that you've already won. I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. What can we face in this life? What can man do to me? Who can stand against me if God is for me? Church, we we need to take encouragement from that. And it's not just so that we can stand there as if we're just this kind of like evangelistic linebacker where we're gonna tackle people with the truth of God. No, our witness is, do we trust that God is enough? So that's what will draw people to. You are walking through this circumstance and you're not shaken. You're not turning to vice. You're not turning to all of these other things. You're not trying to escape it. How is that? Oh, what an opportunity to display confidence in the power of God. I loved in one of our prayer meetings earlier this week. Uh, as we were coming out of uh, each night, we were gathered in the chapel. I'm just grateful for those that showed up. 21 days of prayer that we're in the middle of right now. We're, we're in our last week of that. Mike is going to lead us here in just a moment in prayer. But I just appreciated. I'd never heard Jen Bishop pray before. Jen, I've heard Jim pray. Never heard Jen, and it was wonderful. It was just wonderful because what she was praying about was the things that are happening in the world around us right now and how that's opening doors for her to be able to share the good news of the gospel. And you know, my mind kind of goes to last Sunday when, when I hear a prayer like that and, and, and we're, we're looking at what is God doing? I, I don't know about you, but like Shane and I were just talking at the end of the service, God is doing something here. There there is this sense that there is something about to burst forth in us and through us as a church. And church, let's be ready for that. But reading the fine print is about being ready for that. And Darren had this prophetic sense that that we need to come back to that sense of new wineskin. Oh God, do it. Have your way with us, God. I want to be ready for those things. That's what Jen was praying about these moments when we have to interact with what's popular in the news, these moments when we see something and it's like all of a sudden we're going to have to be the ones who are prepared to give an account for the hope that's within us. That's what scripture tells us. So in this sense that there is something that's new, that's something about to burst forth in us in the church, here's what God is doing. He is preparing us for that. And he's telling us, get ready. How do we get Ready? By placing our trust in him alone. In other words, there's nothing new you have to perform for the new work he's going to do in us. Praise God. It's not up to our performance. See, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the paradox of the grace and the mercy of God. That's the beauty of being released from fear that God is not enough. That's the beauty of being able to stand firm as Paul tells the church to do. Hold fast. There's nothing new that we need to accomplish for God to accomplish his new work in us and through us. We begin in verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. I don't even know what that word is I was trying to say just a second ago. Take two. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on a fig tree in its season, I saw your fathers. They came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves the, to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Hear hear the voice change here. Uh, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? It's almost like mid-prophecy, Hosea interrupts himself. Hang on, I hear this. What? I hear the judgment you're proclaiming over those who don't trust in you. What will you provide, Lord? Give them a miscarrying womb rather than having more children born into this destruction. Verse 15, every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I begin to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit even though they give birth. I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. You may recall a few weeks ago, we talked about the blessing of children. Children are a divine blessing. And barrenness, especially in this day, was seen as a sign of divine judgment. But these verses describe it to us in vivid detail that's almost too difficult to understand. In this vivid detail, what we see is how extensive The judgment of the Lord is. It's really more than just no kids for you. It's a complete destruction of even the reproductive or nurturing capabilities of the people. This is not death light, it's death in full, their senses, their capacities, spiritually and physically. Don't take lightly walking away from the Lord. We'll see in just a moment how this leads to Israel being a fruitless nation. But in the midst of Hosea's prayer for them, what will you provide? We understand that a fruitful womb will be a blessing. But do you know that in Scripture, the miscarrying womb is what leads to a blessing? I want to show you. I just want to show you briefly. On the Via Dolorosa, Jesus says this, Luke 23, 26-31. And as they led him away, they're leading Jesus away. They seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid him to the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold... The days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? As we'll see in just a moment, that's the very cry. That comes out of these chapters in Hosea. We continue in verse 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields no fruit. It yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, for what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empathy oaths. They make covenants, so judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Its people mourn for it, so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over, it, over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria. As a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, here it is. Cover us. And to the hills, fall on us. I haven't seen a brochure for the city of Castleberry, but imagine this terrible one. Come to Castleberry, a city without a future. I hope that that wouldn't make it through the approval process. Come to Castleberry, a city without a future. Remember, it was the people of Israel who early in Scripture cried out for a king, got appointed one even after warning them. Years later, while God causes rulers to rise and fall, he's not as intimately involved in the process. We said this earlier today. Egypt is talked about in Hosea 13 different times. And what, what the prophet is speaking to the people there is he is speaking to their past in the Exodus. He is speaking to the present of Israel's unholy alliance with them. And he's speaking to the future as a symbol of bondage with Assyria that is impending. Chapter 11, verse five, as, as Shane will see next week, they shall return to Egypt Now, it's making it clear, this is figurative speech. This is that reverse exodus that we're talking about. And Assyria becomes the new Egypt, if you will. But what Hosea is identifying in the hearts of the people are growing divisions among themselves. Division between love and loyalty. Divisions in their words and actions. Divisions in their present behavior and the future consequences that those bring. And you know what? These serve as a warning for us today as a church as well. Let there be no division between loyalty to the things of God and the love that we can express to one another and to others because of the love that we have received. Let there be no division between our words and actions as a church. Let there be no divisions in our understanding of our behaviors, excuse me, and our future consequences because of those things. Let us understand rightly as we continue to read from the days of Gibeah, verse 9. You have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. We're no longer talking about an idol, by the way. And I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of of your warriors. Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalaman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle mothers were dashed in pieces with their children thus it shall be done to you O Bethel because of your great evil at, the king, at dawn the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off now throughout this series you may have noticed that there's some repetition it's what the prophets are pointing out to the people of Israel this is Their heart's condition before the Lord is history literally repeating itself. But here's something that is repeated throughout that history as well. God's restraint of his wrath. But here's what we should understand rightly. God's restraint of his wrath should never be misunderstood as his release for you to live for yourself. Let me say that one more time. Because Danny said it was good. God's restraint of his wrath should never be misunderstood as his release for you to live for yourself. Why? Well, Second Peter reminds us. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how do we respond? Church, it's time to seek the Lord. It's time to seek the Lord. Galatians 6, 7 through 9 says this, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows that he That will he also reap, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And do not let us grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If we look at this concept of sowing righteousness and breaking up fallow ground and the call that it's time to seek the Lord, all of these point to the same thing for us as a church, to seek God in faith and repentance. See, the plow of conviction must first break up our hard hearts. And then the seed of the word can be planted rightly. And then the gracious rain of heaven will come down. Yesterday I was working in our yard. Our leadership team community group meets at our house tonight. And I had a to-do list from Stephanie. And trying to finish this one project was one of them. And uh, it was awful. It was pulling some bushes out of some front plant beds. I'm sore today because of it. I'm reminded of what hard ground and vines that can be so deeply rooted, how difficult they can be to pull up. I'm reminded of how things that on the surface may seem rotten actually have this taproot that goes so deep into our hearts and into our lives. And yes, I just kind of switched metaphors and I'm sorry for that. I'm reminded of those things because they pain me today. Imagine the heart of the God that created us when we refuse to break up hollow ground, foul ground, when we refuse to let the seed of the word come into our hearts, when we refuse to receive of the rain of righteousness. Notice how it's spelled it's not R E I G H N, it's R A I N. He wants to rain righteousness down on us. And when that rains on us, what happens? We are washed. We are washed clean. Imagine that we're also transplanted and hear the words of Jesus when he says this to us in John chapter 15, 1 through 8. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are a clean house because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Hosea chapters 8 through 10 show us a picture of God who's exposing hypocrisy of his people that claim to know him and yet continue in blatant and unrepentant sin. It it shows a God who is just in punishing those unrepentant sinners and yet he holds out mercy even as he executes his justice. He holds out mercy to us. God reminds his people the covenant blessings that they have abandoned for idols. And he calls us to seek him. So church, let's wake up by God's power to deliver and let us be people who manifest our confidence in him by patiently waiting for him to bring his promise to fulfillment.